Hey everyone, and no matter where you are and what time it is, welcome to the podcast, or should I say podcast? No, let's let's stick with podcast. Obviously, if you've been following the news recently, you know what is going on in Myanmar. There's been a military coup. There's been violent crackdowns by the military on unarmed civilians, and a whole bunch of stuff that's pretty heavy. And I'm not going to be able to unwrap it on my own. So today, joining me on the podcast will be my former colleague at Reuters, Thin Lei Win. She's going to be talking to us about everything from a Myanmar perspective, and I really appreciate her for joining us.、Um, it should be an interesting time for anyone who's interested in this part of the world. So, without further ado, let's get to it. Good evening, everyone. I am sitting here with Thin Lei Wei,、um, who I knew from her time at Reuters, at the Thomson Reuters Foundation.、Um, but now she's a Burmese journalist, living in Europe and writing about a variety of issues, which I'm sure she'll tell you about. But today, pr- primarily, we're here to talk about what's going on in Myanmar, and and the situation there, which seems to be gl- growing bleaker by the day.、Um, Thin, thank you for.、Uh, Taking your time out of your busy schedule and joining us.、Um, thanks for having me. Tell us what you're doing now before we jump into the heavy stuff. Anything you want to plug beforehand? <laughs> yeah, good question.、Um, okay, so I guess just a very brief background. You know, for nearly 13 years, I was a journalist with the Thomson Reuters Foundation, like you said, the nonprofit arm of the Reuters News Agency, and I was covering. Originally, Southeast Asia、um, on humanitarian issues, so climate, conflict, disasters, refugees and displacement, food security issues, and、um, I was covering Southeast Asia. So, you know,、uh, Myanmar or Burma was part of that remit. And then, then the last、um, three or four years, I focused specifically on food and climate issues. And, you know. Fortunately or unfortunately, in about but six weeks ago, I decided to go freelance、um, to focus specifically on climate and food security issues. Obviously, the hunter had other ideas. So, for the last actually few stories that I have started working as a freelance journalist has pretty much been on Burma or Myanmar because you know I was born and raised there.、Um, I have lived outside of the country for quite a while now, but I still go back very often. I still carry. In Myanmar passport,、um, and I have a lot of loved ones and links still there. So how how hard is it has been to communicate with with your loved one in Myanmar, or has it been relatively painless with what's going on? So the first,、um, I think, day or two was quite a lot harder because、okay. you know there was a, a an internet blackout. I mean, particularly only in Naypyidaw, but it was just you know not knowing what was going on and people just. You know, not not really being sure of what's what's going on, and everyone was really scared of what they could and could not say. You know, it's like almost like overnight the country went back about twenty years,、um, a time where everybody was、uh, suspicious of any phone calls. Or, you know, what's going on? Where we all believed phones were tapped,、um, so we had to be very careful in what we say, and you have to read, you know, everything between the lines. It was almost. It was almost like that. Things have gotten a bit better、um, overnight. In just a few days, you know, suddenly、um, dozens of my contact、um, in-country contacts have appeared on Signal. They've all, you know, transferred from Facebook also to Twitter, you know, and、um, and 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 WhatsApp to Signal. So it has been、um, a lot. Easier to 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 communicate with them than I thought it would be originally,、um, but you know the, the the same fears are still there as to 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 whether you know there's massive surveillance going on and to what extent they can say or not say things. Do you think your position as a journalist,、um, as someone who who worked in a major media organizations in the West,、um, actually jeopardizes some of the contacts that you have there or f- friends and families? That you have there are those considerations that you take into account when you're writing stories about Myanmar. Definitely, I mean, you know, just going back to, I guess, perhaps just you know, just a few years ago, you know, even ten years ago,、um, I would not even put my name down. You know, even I would not even put my byline、um, in some of the stories I do in Myanmar because. 
um, not necessarily just to protect myself, but also to protect the sources that spoke to me. Um, and also just so that I could still go back um, into my country and, 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 you know, not be harassed or worse, um, thrown in jail. Um, I feel like to a certain extent, we have sort of gone back to that era. I mean, I, I now put my name down, obviously, as byline, but the last story that came out a couple of days ago, which was looking at, you know, the impact um, of the coup on climate projects and what it would mean for ethnic, particularly for ethnic minorities. You know, I didn't quote um, any of the, you know, people based in Myanmar by name just because it's just not safe for them. Do you think your reporting or maybe being outspoken or critical about the coup could jeopardize some of the family members that do live in Myanmar still? I guess there are two aspects to it. One is my immediate family members are no longer in the country. Um, so that sort of makes the decision slightly easier, whether or not it's, uh, you know I speak out. Having said that, I still have a lot of loved ones there. Um, and... I am now consciously trying to limit how I contact them and when I contact them and what I say to them when I um, contact them to make sure that what I say cannot be linked to them or traced back to them, if you know what I mean. Um, you know, but it, it's, I think it's a choice that we all have to make. I speak from a relatively privileged position in the sense that I can go to bed at night um, safe in the knowledge that my door won't be broken down. You know, I can go about during the day, not be fearful that I'd be shot by a sniper um, or, or beaten up by the law, you know, enforcement officials. So I feel like it is my responsibility to speak out. That's, I mean, obviously with, with privilege comes responsibility. And do you feel that as you just said, do you feel that there's this constant responsibility to, to show the international community what's going on in Myanmar? And, and, and how do you like, what do you hope to accomplish by speaking out other than to just shed light on the atrocities that's happening in country? Um, I think, to be honest with you, pretty much everyone, both inside and outside the country, feels that responsibility. Uh, whether we should or not is another question, because I think... Um, then we're just pretty, you know, it's a little bit arrogant of me to feel like, you know, I could actually make a difference when I'm just, I don't know, a single person with perhaps a slightly a, a bigger platform than an ordinary Burmese person. Um, but having said that, yes, um, I remember growing up in, 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 in Yangon, Myanmar, you know, um, in the 80s and the 90s, the isolation that I felt, um, because that's what the hunter wants, right? The hunter wants um, Myanmar to be forgotten. The hunter wants uh, the rest of the world to not know what is going on. When you felt so isolated um, and as if nobody really cares about what's going on in your country, unless there was a massive, you know, protest or bloodshed, um, and I think a lot of us feel that responsibility, those both who are inside and outside, to, to, to shine a light on what's going on. And that's, you know, and I think that's, that, that has sort of a, a, a couple of purposes, uh, not just for the rest of the world to know what is going on, but also to show solidarity with the people in the country. Um, because what the junta wants to do is to isolate the people and the country and, you know, and, 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 and the world, for the world to forget about what's going on there. And, and, and we don't want to give them that satisfaction. I think, um, I mean, obviously, Myanmar is now part of this larger thing within Southeast Asia called the Milk Tea Alliance, which I'm sure you've, you've heard of and are aware of. And, and it's this movement yeah. against dictatorships across the region. And it started in Hong Kong and it expanded to the Philippines and Thailand. And now Myanmar is the latest addition to the cause. But having spoken to some of the Milk Tea Alliance members, say within Hong Kong, where the, the situation is quite bleak, there's almost this fatalistic acceptance that even though they're really fighting hard and they really want change, in the end, it might not be enough. Do you think that the people protesting in Myanmar now 
feel that they can actually achieve their aims and, and fight against this overarching dictatorial power with guns and bullets and tanks and planes. Yeah, you know, I mean, if you look on paper, that is just so unbalanced, right? One side with absolutely nothing, <laughs> but pure, you know, except perhaps, you know, determination and uh, to, to, to no longer live, go back to living again in fear and isolation. And one side with pretty much everything, um, including guns, you know, the, the money, the power, the technology, and, and I think maybe in, in some case, uh, more importantly, that this this ruthlessness and the brutality to do whatever it takes um, just to quelch any dissent. Um, I think when the protest started, and to some extent, I think until now, people still do really believe they can still win. Um, whether or not that is realistic is another question. But there is people, you know, who truly believe that they can actually bring change um, and, and, and by protesting peacefully and, 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 and continue, you know, the, the protests have been to all intents and purposes super peaceful and that continues even after the crackdown. Having said that, I am also hearing just in the last day or two um, from people who are feeling quite fatalistic, like you said, you know, in Hong Kong where, you know, yep, um, I'm not sure we can win, but we're going to keep doing it anyway, because what choice do we have? You know, and in, in a way, I think, you know, if you look at Myanmar society, we've always been pretty fatalistic. Part of it is because of the whole Buddhist, you know, majority notion of everything is being determined by fate, right? And that has been used in a way to sort of um, uh, rationalize a lot of the behavior in the past you know, even if the military did something, they'll be like, oh, well, it's fate. We were, you know, we did something in our past life, so we now are being oppressed. Well, this is fate. The military leaders will get their comeuppance in their next life. Um, and now that has sort of, in a way, been transformed into another, I guess, uh, fatalistic thing as to like, well, if we are supposed to die, we will die, but we will die doing this. That's rather bleak, but but I know. Um, sorry, I, I wish I was a lot more optimistic. Yeah, well, I can see how how optimism can be crushed by the military and what they're doing over the past week or so, and and that's exactly what they want, which is which is something that we don't want to encourage. So, I mean, I, I I wish there was hope for 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 the region and 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 for for Myanmar specifically because of the the amount of atrocities that we're seeing coming out of there. The one thing I want to ask is: is there a sense of disappointment on the part of the Myanmar people? on international organizations or neighboring countries or superpowers like the United States or China in, in, in just them just sitting by and doing nothing or just co condemning or maybe doing sanctions, but not actually considering any, any kind of intervention? Or, or do you think that that was never on the cards and the Myanmar, Myanmar people knew that? Well, okay. So I think there are two parts to, to that question, you know, the anticipation and, oh, ex sorry, I guess I should say the expectation and, uh, uh, and, 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 and the action, you know, following the expectation. Um, there is a massive disconnect between, I think, the expectations of the people in Myanmar versus what the international community can actually do, as well as what they are willing to do. And there, those are different things, right? Um, but also you have to remember, and I know, you know, I guess just to give context, just, you know, until up until the coup, just until maybe, you know, five weeks ago, um, international community and the UN, you know, were in the black books in most, you know, in the, in, in the eyes of most Myanmar people um, because of their stance towards the Rohingya. Right, because Myanmar and particularly Doan San Suu Kyi and NLD were criticised for not uh, speaking out against the atrocities committed by the Rohingya. So there were so many people who were against international community and the UN, and now you know that has completely changed in the span of a few weeks. So of course there are a lot of people who are pointing out, you know, sort of like the 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 the, the, the sort of hypocrisy around it as to why they didn't speak out um, earlier, which fair, 
but also misses the point. We are sort of seeing this transformation in society almost in real time with a small number, but still a growing number of people suddenly turning around and saying, oh my God, perhaps we were wrong to trust the military and the government propaganda on what's happening in the Rohingya. And I think we need to encourage that and welcome that. But then the thing is, I think unfortunately the society has gone to the slight extreme in expecting the UN and the international community to suddenly come in, you know, like with tanks and drones. Um, that was never going to happen. I mean, perhaps if it was something like East Timor, Timor-Leste, where the UN had the peacekeeping force, there may have been at least a tiny, tiny amount of perhaps leeway where the UN could do something, you know, and even that would be minuscule. Myanmar never had a peacekeeping force. You know, the, the, the engagement had always been, been, been small. Um, there was all these talk about the responsibility to protect, but even during Psycho Nagas, it was invoked and didn't happen. There is very, very, um, you know, there, there are massive limitations as to what the international can, uh, community can do beyond going for targeted sanctions um, and, and even calling for arms embargoes, not going to work, but at least, you know, people who want to argue against it, they will have to say it in public, right? To say, oh no, we will continue selling arms to this regime that we have seen kill innocent people. So a lot of that push, some of it is political, not necessarily practical. Um, um, but I think in general, the ordinary Burmese people do not understand that. So there has been a lot of expectations being raised, partly based on the rhetoric from the international community, which has, you know, used really bombastic words, some of which is for their own constituency, not necessarily for the Burmese people. But the Burmese people are seeing that and taking that on board and thinking, oh, my God, we might actually get, you know, military support, which wasn't going to happen. Now, that is for the international aspect. The regional aspect people did not expect very much from ASEAN or you know neighbors and in that sense I guess you can't say they've been let down but they were still disappointed and frustrated because and I think you know my personal opinion is that ASEAN at least are the ones that have some some say in what is going on in Myanmar and probably one of the few groups that might have been able to influence the junta. In some would you, would you say yes. would you say would you say that ASEAN countries have more sway than maybe the states or China because of its proximity? Well, I probably wouldn't say China, but definitely more than Europe or the US. Right? When Cyclone Nagas hit in 2008, it was ASEAN together with the UN and the junta that came together to form this tripartite working group. And whereas now it just feels like there's a lot of platitudes. Like if you listen to the interview with, you know, the Singapore uh, prime minister, um, it was, it was, you know, they, they obviously understood all that was going on with the Myanmar history, but they still were against even sanctions. You know, forget about the, the comments from Thailand where there is so much, uh, 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 similarity, you know, in terms of the coup and militarily close. Their solidarity um, in dictatorships. <laughs> uh, exactly. That's been, you know, super, super disappointing um, because I feel like there, you know, Singapore, there is still a lot of business links with Myanmar, you know, Thailand, a lot of military links. Um, and yet we aren't seeing it. Forget about China and Russia, because I think to some extent, a lot of their decision will be very much based on their own self-interest. Um, and, and we're going to get, I, I don't think we're, we're going to get much cooperation, much cooperation, particularly from Russia. I think China might still be able to do something. But, you know, ASEAN, yeah. I mean, how, I mean, how can I count the ways of how disappointed we are with them? That's fair enough. I mean... Yeah. Uh, that's fair enough. A, a lot of empty rhetoric so far, but even even that empty rhetoric seems seems un-ASEAN in in how some some countries have been a bit more 
forthcoming than others. Um, my other question to you is, is how have the ethnic states taken these uh, the, the coup so far? Because th- I've seen a lot of pictures coming out from Kachin State, from Wa State, from from Arakan State um, coming out against the coup and, and expressing solidarity with the Myanmar people. Is, is that something that's happened before? Is it unprecedented? Like, w- what's the takeaway from that? Yeah, so I guess, you know, the only other comparison we could make um, with the, the, the protests that we're seeing right now is the 1988 protests, right? Which, is, which was also nationwide and involved all sorts of um, people from all walks of life and um, involved all the states and, and, and regions. Um, having said that, I think um, this time around, it is bigger, it is in the sense of much better organized, right? Because in the last 10 years, Myanmar have become um, connected and people now know how to organize protests. And there is this uh, a bigger solidarity with the ethnic groups, um, but the demands are different. I think I need to point that out. A lot of, I think, um, you know, the, 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 the Bama um, protesters and, and, and some of the, 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 the older generation perhaps um, are asking mainly purely for the you know, return of the civilian government. Um, you know, they don't want a new election. They just want the 2020 elections results to be recognized, you know, whereas the ethnic groups, um, whereas the ethnic groups are, uh, are making a lot more broader demands that also include things like the abolition of the 2008 constitution um, and um, uh, 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 the establishment of a federal democracy, you know, which are obviously, you know, big, massive changes to the political system as well. Um, and they are obviously calling for the release of Aung San Suu Kyi and NLD leaders, but that is not the only thing. So there are big differences, but yes, um, pretty much every single state and region. Now, having there is a little bit in terms of the Rakhine, you know, or Arakan, um, there has been, we have seen a lot of protests, mainly in the Southern parts of it, but it has been slightly different um, in, 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 for example, like I think Situate and a couple of other places um, where the main, you know, Arakan uh, opposition party, ANP, is now part of the State Administrative Council um, under the junta. Um, and they seem to be working with the junta, whereas um, there's a lot more division um, on, on, on whether, you know, ethnic parties should work with the hunter and there's a lot more widespread protest in other other ethnic states it seems that that i mean i i'm not a myanmar expert by any leaps and bounds but but the one comparison i would make is to thailand and you were you were in thailand quite a bit so you're you're familiar with what goes on here the junta in thailand when they came into power in 2014 made sure they had their political considerations in place they had the right people to run the right right ministries well, sort of, um, but they, they, there was some political savvy, I should say, whereas it seems that the Myanmar junta is just a blunt instrument that is hell-bent on, on power and, and, and they're not going to take too much political considerations into account and they're just more than happy to just shoot people rather than, than play the right political games and, and find allies. Do you think that's accurate? Yeah, I, I think that is pretty accurate, but also correct me, you know, if I'm wrong, Cod, because you are so much deeper into the, you know, reporting on Thai local politics than I, than I am or have, have I was ever. Um, I also feel like the Thai, um, uh, uh, in Thailand, I also feel like the people are much more divided than they are in Myanmar. When I say divided in the sense that there is actually a sizable number of people who supported the coup and were, um, you know, willing uh, for, for, for the coup leaders and, and, and the status quo to remain. Whereas I think in Myanmar, I mean, I would, I would put hand on heart, say 99%, you know, of civilians do not want the military. So in a way, it's a lot more clear cut 
which also makes, like you said, um, a, it makes it so much more difficult for the military to put any political considerations just because they have absolutely no political capital. Right. Um, I mean, you're absolutely correct to my embarrassment that a large, a large chunk of our population did support the military takeover. But I think that factored into to the military government of Thailand's consideration before they launched the coup. They knew they had a base of support. Um, and I don't think there was a coup if there was no base of support, right? Um, so mm -hmm. if, if we had the same situation as Myanmar, where 99% of the civilians are against the coup, it wouldn't have happened. But but that being said, so so there there would you say that there's actually no support? I mean, that's as a Thai, that's unfathomable to me, embarrassingly so, that there is no support at all for, for the Myanmar coup, but they did it anyway? Like, not even within conservatives within the society? Well, I, 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 I wouldn't say there were no support, but I would, I would, I would bet it was tiny, you know? I mean, obviously we don't know if the hunter conducted a public poll before they staged a coup, right? Um, because if, if they did, I'd like to know which company they used because it was very clear if you look from the election results um, that people did not want the military parties to win. Yes, the electoral system was is flawed. First past the post is definitely not a good system for a very diverse country like Myanmar. Um, and, you know, because that means the NLD, you know, uh, 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 winning a certain percentage translates into pretty much complete landslide um, and there was mass disenfranchisement of ethnic voters but even taking those two into account the results were pretty clear cut you know so the military may have thought before the election even if they did think that um, they had support of a sizable but minority group of people, the elections would have shown them that that was not the case. So we could only surmise that they decided to do it anyway um, because there is no other options, right? Because if they go down, um, continue going down this path of elections every five years, they will continue to keep losing. People just do not like them. They are just incredibly unpopular. And I think they know that even if you, you know, have Trumpian instincts, you would have known just from the elections result and the protest that's been happening for the past three weeks, you cannot turn around and say, oh, we, 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 are, we are popular, you know, we do have some support base. They, they, they don't. I mean, that's not to say they don't have support. I mean, I am still seeing even among, you know, a handful of people I know who still think the coup wasn't wrong but that is a tiny minority can you can you break down the differences in the, in the armed forces for me because obviously in thailand we have we have competition within the armed forces the police don't always get along with the soldiers but it seems like almost all the security forces are are under one umbrella and they're pretty much towing the party line so the police are carrying out the will of the junta the soldiers are carrying out the will of the junta and it, it doesn't there doesn't seem to be any any faction that might dissent out or, 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 or launch a counter coup or, or, or fight against that line. Is that accurate? Yeah, so I have to, you know, uh, uh, put in a caveat there. I am definitely not an expert on, you know, on the, on the military um, and to not have any special insights there. But I think it is helpful to perhaps remember that, you know, while, you know, the military is not monolithic or I should say security forces because, you know, both the police and the military, it's not, it's not a, you know, a monolithic organization. Having said that, you know, they have their own structure um, and particularly the military, um, you know, you have the barracks, you have the living quarters, even their families, they all live together, you know, they have always been an entity on their own separate from sort of like the general public um, so while you know many people may know you know friends or family members who may have married into there um, it is still a very very different um, 
Would you say yes, closed yes. off society? Yes. Yes, very, very, very much so. I think in some ways the police have a lot more daily interaction uh, with ordinary people than, than the military. Um, so, you know, that, I think in, that, that makes them also in a way very self-sustaining and, and, you know, keeps the whole very tight, I guess, you know, within that. Um, I think that's also why nobody's talking about an internal crew because I, I, I think very few people believe there is even a possibility. Having said that, we have started to see just in the past couple of days, you know, a tiny handful of perhaps police um, that has decided to join the CDM, the Civil Disobedience Movement. It's still absolutely tiny compared to what it was. But yeah, you know. That's not a possible I solution think, to the crisis then. Yeah, I, I think the mentality um, from what I understand anyway, from what I've heard from people is, is, is that, you know, we are the people that uphold the law and order and peace. And, you know, they, this is what they need to do and they just need to follow orders. Um, what was interesting though, was I think there was an interview yesterday with perhaps, I, I wonder whether it's a police or army, I can't remember, um, who defected and they were talking about how it's really hard for them to defect um, and that they need time. Um, and of course, you know, which is true, but time might also be not something that we have, unfortunately. Um, yeah, I, I, I know this doesn't really answer your question, but 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 yeah, I, I think it is just, they have always been such a closed um, organizations. They have been closed organizations that it's it's really hard to understand what is going on and what is needed to try and even perhaps persuade or encourage them um, to change sides. So since the last election in 2015, there you could say that, that Myanmar civil society has grown leaps and bounds in just half a decade um, with access to internet now becoming pretty much the norm. Um, you've got the growth of arts and culture and, and a growing reading culture within Myanmar that always existed, but, but has grown exponentially since, since Suchi came into power. W would you say that, that being in the barracks, that the military is largely shielded from this change in perspective that, that Myanmar wants to open itself up to the world, that it wants to be a vibrant democracy with pluralism and, and intellectualism and the military is just left behind and, and, and it hasn't evolved and it's, it's the same institution it was two decades ago? Oh, that's a great question. And I'm not sure I have the answer for that because, you know, I guess we all have seen, like you said, and it wasn't even just in the last five years because, you know, it was probably eight years ago when they liberalized the telecom sector. So that was in, 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 in that eight, seven, eight years that suddenly, you know, millions of people came online, right, and discovered what is out there. And you would also have thought the military, or at least, you know, some of the soldiers and police would have seen and noticed and experienced as well. Um, I don't know, perhaps that was not long enough for them to, to, to see the alternative. Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, the military was one of uh, the, the, the first users of Facebook and they embraced you know, social media, uh, particularly Facebook, you know, from the get go, and we're still doing so up until they got banned, you know, and that was that was their their, their choice way of right. getting you, and you see that. all these soldiers on TikTok. Um, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, so it, it, they were part of it. Um, I don't know why that hasn't given them the same perspective that perhaps ordinary people have seen. Um, I don't know. Unfortunately, I can't. Yeah. But I mean, like you said, they, they do seem to be attempting to rewind the clock in Myanmar to, to a time before the liberalization where they had supreme power. I mean, that's, that's, that's not, that's not inaccurate, right? I'm, I'm, I'm. I'm no, no, no. I, I think that's exactly, you know, they're trying to close the Pandora's box, right? They opened it eight years ago and now they're trying to put a lid back on it. Um, and, that's what they're trying to also do, I think, with the, all the shootings and the internet blackouts um, and, 
and and you know arrests is in the last seven or eight years a lot of the people have learned not to live in fear and they are trying to put that fear back that's scary and also begs the question that like you said protests have been remarkably even more so than thailand remarkably peaceful since since the coup on february 1 what i want to know is how long will this patience on the behalf of the citizens last how long and they say until they say you know what this peaceful shit's not working for us maybe it's time we talk about the r word maybe it's time we talk about mobilizing well i guess part of the problem in in that sense well maybe not a problem let me just rephrase this i guess part of the challenge is that um ordinary citizens just do not have access to weapons to arms you know so even if they don't want to be peaceful there is very limited uh options in terms of what they can do and what they can use right to to fight an army that yeah in the last few years have um upgraded their weapons and technology um as we've seen um so that there is they are limited also in what they can get access to um i think people are still largely committed to doing it in a peaceful means you know but but will obviously engage in self protection but i don't think they are looking at taking the offense or offense but partly that's also because that option is not really available to them fair enough but do you think there's any kind of event that might catalyze riots and and violence i mean suchi's obviously um also suchi's obviously under arrest we we don't know her fate if something were to happen to her i mean i can't imagine things being peaceful all the time i mean there are tipping points i think the military won't touch because they know that it would just go to hell in in a very short amount of time yeah i i do think i i definitely agree with you um and i think perhaps um you know that particular tipping point like you mentioned would be one um again even then i think it would mainly be masses of people coming up with probably homemade weapons you know and just overpowering in terms of numbers not necessarily in terms of weapons do you know what i mean um but i i do agree with you i think they they will try and avoid it and i hope they do I hope yeah. they do. And I think the military is aware that there are lines that they cannot cross if they if they want to have a country to govern because if that if things push comes to shove that that that's like the worst case scenario I think. But then again, yeah. But then again, like again, this is this is the sort of thing I was talking to Hong Kong protesters about when I was there is that they wanted to provoke that kind of reaction because it's the only thing that would get the international community to act otherwise the military can play this game for the next 5 months and they'll be fine right oh yeah and yeah. and they can keep shooting people and as long as the international community just says we're going to do targeted sanctions as long as 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 you know you can you can starve them you, you can try to do civil disobedience and not go to work and and really just cause the economy to crash but I think the military just gets to write it out because of how powerful they are and because they've always been preparing for something like this. Yeah, but interesting, you know, um I saw uh, a friend posting something uh on 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 Facebook which I thought was interesting because it sort of slightly goes against that narrative. Yes, you know, the military can wait it out, but they were also saying hang on a minute, you know, in the last 5 or 10 years as well, the military has suddenly uh become part of a global supply chain. right they still rely on lots of other actors uh, around the world to get things moving you know they it's all about talking about like the ports you know being reopened so that they can get the crude oil and all that sort of stuff but um you know they no longer um what what i'm just trying to find the right phrase for it you know it's no longer just a a, a monopoly right that they no longer control the whole supply chain from any anything so they will feel the effect um and 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 this friend was saying they were saying you know look the military is talking big but they already are going to feel the effects of it sooner rather than later um because of the fact that for example they can no longer you know withdraw uh their money from the US um 
U.S. companies will no longer be able to invest or do any deals because you just won't be able to get any loans. The, I guess the issue also is, it's now illegal to actually do deals with Myanmar. Yeah, ex- exactly. And there are you know issues around the constitutionality of the coup and what that means for 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 both private and public sector and civil society and you know international multilateral organizations. How do they deal with this? There's all these questions around it. I think that the, the, the issue, of course, is, yeah, is it, 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 time as to how quickly will they feel the hurt. Um, my, and, and slightly, I guess, unrelated, but something that has always been, you know, thinking that, that, that's been in the back of my head is, you know, the military must feel cornered, right? They must feel cornered now. Uh, because yes, the, you know, despite what I've said, that the ASEAN has not been very um, um, uh, outspoken against them. Um, but even you know, Russia is still a friend. But even China, you know, sort of signed off on that sort of fairly strong Security Council statement, um, and it sounded like they have not been completely, you know, happy with the the, the proceedings. And you know, they do not have the support of the people. Um, but and I think you will understand this when I say this, they're going to lose their face massively if they back down, right? So yeah. what, what, what do they I do? I mean, How? You, you, need, you need to offer them a path where they can save face, where you go, uh, you know, some sort of thing if you want to avoid more bloodshed. But, but that being said, if, if the protesters take their, their uh, foot off the pedal now and they sort of ease up with the protests, I think... China may be condemning them one day, but the moment that the, the protests ease up, they're back in there, and Russia's back yeah. in there. And, exactly. and, and Western companies with no ethics will be back in there in a heartbeat, the moment that yeah. the protests die down yeah. and business goes yeah. back to normal. So so I think the protesters see like they don't, you would know better than I would, but see it as if they don't have any choice right now. They have to keep the foot on from the pedal, no matter the, the, the human cost. But I guess even if they don't think that strategically, right, it's just the anger uh, uh, is there. They're furious, and, and, and rightly so, right? Like, because if you look just slightly back, you know, the military already holds pretty much all the winning cards. I mean, you know, they had the parliamentary presentation. They, you know, hold really important ministries. And I guess that's uh, one thing that I should have added when you were asking about the police and the military, you know, the Ministry of Home Affairs, the Ministry of Defense, you know, the, the, the key three key ministries were still under military, you know, the, the military still had a choice on who to appoint the ministers. So for, for, for many years, you know, they were never under civilian leadership. Yeah, so they never had to change their behavior um, or what they do. So, you know, the military had a vice president, you know, all the economic um, holdings were still in play and they had a pliant civilian government that will actually take the blame for them. Like, you know, NLD and on. I mean, on the Rohingya especially, right? Yeah. You know, she went back for them at The Hague. You know, so they already had all of that and yet they weren't happy. They wanted more. Like, what more could you want? So, you know, the protesters are also just so angry at, at the military's decision to do this and do this at a time when the country was already on its knees from COVID and an economic crisis, you know? So even if they weren't thinking strategically, they're just so angry. Looking back, I'm glad you brought it up, but looking back at, at Suchi's sort of relationship with the military, do you think in, with hindsight, it was a mistake because she, like you said, she went to bat for them. She took the blame for them when it wasn't her fault. She, um, yep. she basically did everything she could to stop another coup, and another coup happened anyways. And now, and now, if she had been a bit more aggressive, if she had been more a bit more assertive with them, knowing that she had the full support of the military, there might have been another coup. But like, at least her international reputation wouldn't have been destroyed. And 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 you know and there there was something there you know and do you think it was a tactical mistake yeah i don't you know hard to hard to say right um easy now to look back on it but to be perfectly honest with you um i again i don't have special insights into what dosu is thinking but 
from just reading, you know, between the lines and from the things that she has said, I'm not even sure it was just a, a, a political tactic that she, you know, sort of um, did not um, call out the military for all the stuff that they did. I mean, she, you know, decided against doing a committee of inquiry for all the past atrocities that they committed as well. Um, you know, she publicly spoke about the military as her, you know, her father's army and how she has affection for it. And I seriously, you know, this is just my personal opinion. I seriously do think she really thought, you know, the fact that she was her father's daughter made a difference to the army and she really did perhaps have affection for them. You know, it, it, it's mind boggling to me um, to consider that. But that's someone who's but, placed you, you know, a lot of years of your life in house arrest might be harboring a soft spot for you as a. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All, you know, uh, yeah. Uh, um, and yes, you know, from the beginning, I think there were some of us who was who disagreed with that stance, you know, because the military has always behaved with impunity and we just sort of let them go, you know, like they never ever had to account for their crimes or maybe, you know, the one of the cases, you know, with the where, with the massacres of the Rohingya where, you know, two of my ex-colleagues from Mauritius actually were thrown in jail for exposing that, you know, some of the soldiers um, actually did um, see some punishment, although apparently they were released you know, in the amnesty recently. So go figure. <laughs> that may have been one of the very few instances where, you know, there was some sort of uh, a punishment, but, you know, there was absolutely none. And we always, I think, when I say we, you know, some of us always thought that was just, that was just maybe blindness on her part. And this Which is going is to be bizarre. You know, and it's, it's, yeah. Do you think do you think her reputation is still intact with the majority of Myanmar citizens though? Oh yes, yes, yes. And so a lot of you know uh, uh, the people, and particularly in the Bama majority uh, group, you know she's still a very, very, very popular. So you know it's still very controversial to criticize her. Um, what a lot of ethnic you know activists have been doing it's still controversial. But you know we do need to talk about it. Um, to a lot of Bama, you know, she represents this great big hope. And I can understand why it is difficult to let that go. But, for example, you know, for, uh, for example, a lot of the, you know, MPs in her parties were at a loss after she was detained. Like, they didn't know what to do. And, you know, part of it is because, you know, the top echelons of NLD, including her, failed to properly train and set up a new generation of leaders that could take over. Massive failure on their part. Agree. And, 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 and it's amazing how well coordinated the protests are, despite that lack in leadership. The young people of Myanmar have really, I mean, stepped up in, in, uh, in recent days. Um, okay. I promised you I wouldn't take up too much of your time, so we're running to the end of this. But <laughs> but do give me your thoughts. Like, what is your hope? What is the best case scenario for you? What happens next? Oh, uh, I don't know. The best case scenario. Are we talking realistically? Yes, be realist. <laughs> be realist. No cyclone <laughs> is going to sweep through Napidor and sweep up the generals, unfortunately. So realistically, what is the best case scenario? How do how do how does this come to, to get resolved anytime soon or does it? The, my ideal scenario, if it is all possible, is as little bloodshed as possible um, in the coming days where ASEAN and China start speaking up more, perhaps because of international pressure. Maybe that's where the US and EU can put pressure on these countries diplomatically to speak out a bit more, give the junta some sort of faith to sort of ease up 
I don't know whether that means political asylum for men online and some of the big guys in some of the countries, um, you know, outside of Myanmar. Um, and we then, you know, start doing, you know, hopefully in the next few weeks, do some sort of a, a, a not a tripartite, but a multi-party, you know, multi-stakeholder sort of sit-down negotiations between the army, um, the people representing not just the elected part members, yeah, the protesters, including the ethnic groups, and perhaps with some sort of international regional observers around it to try and figure out a way, because much as I would love for there to be a revolution to completely topple the military, I don't think that is going to happen and revolutions are super bloody and I just don't want to see more blood shed and, and that blood is going to come from innocent civilians yeah it's not going to come from the law enforcement side yeah and it's already it's already coming and it's terrible yeah um yeah but yeah. what's not terrible is joining me on my podcast so thank you so much then for 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 coming on the podcast I hope you're doing well in Italy um I hope friends and family they're all safe and they continue to be safe going forward um drop by again anytime to talk about myanmar we're fascinated by it um we want the best and we, we express so much solidarity with the people there they inspire us more than we inspire them i think because we wish we had those kinds of numbers um but again thank you no thanks for having me and hopefully it was um useful and interesting it was completely coherent don't you worry um that's all for me for this episode um check back in next week we're gonna have a different guest um we'll be talking about a different issue but check our twitter and our website for for all our upcoming schedules thank you very much everyone for listening <laughs>